All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I am your host, Aaron Freeman, and today we are continuing my positional review of the 2017 Falcons season and roster. Today we're talking wide receivers and tight ends. You are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, guys, this is part two of the positional review, the roster review, whatever you want to call it. Um, we did the quarterbacks, running backs, and the fullback position on yesterday's show. We're going to do wide receivers and tight ends today. And depending on sort of how long this episode lasts, if I can get it under 45 minutes, then uh, we'll probably do offensive line and defensive line tomorrow. Uh, that's going to be a little bit more extensive. Uh, but we might wind up separating those out just because I, I may come to discover, well, you know, these episodes are running a little bit longer than the usual 30 to 40 minute format that we typically try to adhere to. Yesterday's was a full hour, even though there were additional topics. Um, this one is about to be a full hour because I haven't even gotten to the conversation. And I'm, I'm giving you all this stuff. So let, let's jump right into it. Uh, before we get into the wide receiver position group, I do want to give two caveats. Uh, before the second one will leave, will lead right into that wide receiver discussion. But the first one is I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time today talking about Julio Jones. I don't think what what do I need to say about Julio Jones? What I don't think there's much that I have to say. He's one of the best players on the planet. Um, I could I guess devote some of this time to discussing why Julio Jones doesn't get enough touchdowns or the various topics that people tend to discuss online when in regards to Julio Jones and the great mysteries of life in regarding to Quintoris Lopez Jones. Um, but for me, at least as particularly that touchdown discussion, and I touched upon this a little bit on Friday's uh, season wrap-up episode when we talked about Julio in the red zone, but I think a lot of that stuff is more fantasy football related than quote-unquote reality football related. Um, maybe later this off season, uh, we might devote a full episode to talking about Julio Jones. I had one person email me, uh, last week suggesting that maybe one of the possible off season topics is devoting future episodes, a full episode to one specific player and in going deep, doing a deep dive on individual players and whatnot. Maybe we might even devote a full week to Julio Jones because he's, he's worth it. He's, 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 he's that important and whatnot. And so if that's a good idea to some of you listeners, you know, that's not necessarily something we're going to do next week or tomorrow or anything like that, but maybe later on in the off season, particularly during that dead time after the draft. Um, if that's something that sounds like a good idea to you guys, then, um, you know, shoot me an email, lockedonfalcons at mail.com. Go on Facebook, Locked on Falcons, Twitter, Locked on Falcons. Let me know if, if you think that's a good idea. In the meantime, though, I think we can sort of move past Julio. He's the son, as I've said many, many times in this podcast. He contains 99% of the gravity in the solar system. And it's just, you know, it's much more compelling in my mind to talk about the quote-unquote other planets um, and, and really talk about that analysis. You know, the last thing I'll say about Julio Jones is I think Julio has probably another three to five years of peak seasons left in him. You know, hopefully it's five, but maybe it's three. Um, and, you know, I think some people have been sort of stating over the last couple of months that they feel like the Falcons need to go out and get another wide receiver that can sort of fill Julio's shoes in the event that he starts to decline in the near future or he gets hurt again and is out for an extended period of time. 
But I, I don't really agree with that because, you know, again, I think he's the son. And I think it's very similar to what the Lions had to go through with Calvin Johnson. You know, they didn't go out there and try to replace Megatron with one guy. They went out there and basically replaced him with two guys in Golden Tate and Marvin Jones, who are basically 1A and 1B uh, wide receivers for that team because you're not going to replace Megatron. He's a generational receiver. Julio's a, a generational receiver. And so this idea that you can go out and find a guy that can be Julio or even a Julio light is just not that realistic. I mean, how many guys are on that level? Like seven or eight guys that are in that category that you would call Julio-esque or julio light. Like, I mean, Adam Thielen's a top 10 wide receiver. Had a great season, but no one sits here and thinks Adam Thielen is like Julio Light. You know what I'm saying? Like if we put Adam Thielen on the team, he'd be a great number two, but he's not replacing Julio Jones in your offense in, in that sort of functionality. Um, so it, to me, that idea that you need to be on the, start being on the lookout for a Julio replacement, I, th- I think is a little bit premature. Um, but let's move on to the second caveat. Um and that caveat is going to be about Steve Sarkeesian and sort of blaming some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today on his not great play calling. And I, I want to get this caveat out the way because over the next day or so and throughout this offseason, you're going to hear me a lot being very critical of Steve Sarkeesian. But like, I don't want to I don't like playing the blame game in the way of. Uh, because I think it, it sort of makes people get into this mindset of, oh man, if we cut, trade, replace, upgrade, fire, etc., this guy, then all of our problems go away. It gets people into much more black and white thinking, and I, I think there's um, a lot more gray there. You know, I don't think firing Sark or getting rid of Sark fixes the Falcons' issues. You know, it could lead to better performance or it could lead to worse performance. You never know. And, uh, you know, I think. I certainly think that Sark has to get more out of this team in 2018 to get it competing at the highest levels because, you know, um, spoiler alert, as we get further along in this roster review over the next day or so, you know, many of you probably will come away thinking, man, Aaron doesn't really think there's a lot of holes on his team because I don't really think there's a lot of holes on this team. As I said on previous episodes of this podcast, I don't think the Falcons roster is that bad off. It could certainly be tweaked and adjusted and improved in a lot of ways, but they're not necessarily in a position where, the, you know, they're, they have massive issues on their roster. Their, their issues are not related to personnel. Their issues are re- related to, you know, at least in 2017, were related to play calling. And that's what sort of prevented them from sort of reaching the, their peak potential this past season is that, you know, they didn't get as much from their offensive coordinator as they could or should have gotten, maybe. Um, and like, you know, again, I, I want to raise this point because I think you have to understand my, at least in my, in in this case, my perspective is, you know, you have to understand this point with Sark, where I, I do think there's a lot of, of room for growth there. And a lot of the criticisms, particularly when it comes to this wide receiver and tight end position later on, is more a criticism of the general sort of vanilla-ness of the, uh, of the offense and its, its route combinations than necessarily, oh, these guys just aren't good. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I, I don't think Sark is the only issue 
with this team. Uh, there's going to be times this offseason where I'm going to be very critical of Sark. There's going to be times this offseason where I'm, I'm very sympathetic to Sark. Um, and so, like, again, I, I think, you know, don't get it twisted. That's basically what I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, I'm going to be critical of Sark particularly today, but I don't want people to be like, oh, Aaron's blaming all the Falcons issues on Sark. But I also don't want to make people think that, you know, whatever. You you guys get it. Caveat over. Let's jump into the wide receiver and, and tight end position because I do think this position group in particular was sort of symptomatic of the larger issue that was Steve Sarkeesian with the, the vanilla route combinations throughout the season. And, you know, I think in particular, you can certainly argue that that came to really sort of be their downfall in that Eagles game. Um, you know, we, we talked about sort of the comparison of Sark's offense to the pre-Shanahan of offenses of Cutter and Malarkey and the sort of the vanilla route combinations and really racially, because those two offenses and now Sark's offense Basically, I would argue we're too reliant on sort of man beater concepts with their routes. And so that basically relied on a wide receiver beating the guy covering him. And when you had elite talent at the at the position group like we had in 2012, that wasn't an issue. But when you didn't, you know, 2013 obviously jumps out to mind when Julio and, and, and Roddy missed most of that season. Then all of a sudden those that becomes a lot more problematic for your offense to be able to function at a high or, or even competent level. So I don't want to spend this roster review taking shots at, at Sark, but I think you have to understand that baseline concept first about what we're talking about, where a lot of the issues I have with the wide receiver group, I don't think require an upgrade in personnel. I think it requires an upgrade in play calling, an upgrade in play design. Um, you know, because I just think, you know, the man beater concepts work because, you know, obviously for Julio Jones, because he's Julio Jones, I think they work to a certain extent for Muhammad Sanu, but they're sort of reliant on him, you know, running a sort of specific route tree. I think where it doesn't necessarily work is for the other guys like Gabriel and, and Hardy, because even though I don't think the con- the the quality of between Sanu, Gabriel, and Hardy is really the difference between those guys is really significant enough to really distinguish them. The fact that Sanu gets a lot of opportunities, a lot more opportunities than those guys, I think benefits Sanu in a lot of ways that those other guys don't get. And so I think, you know, Sanu is able to win in those man beater concepts. Um, but a lot of it is dependent on the quality of cornerback that's facing him. Um, you know, it's, it's part of the reason why I'm not a huge Muhammad Sanu fan. Um, and again, I'm not going to use this as a opportunity to bash Muhammad Sanu, but I'm, I'm giving you guys my honest assessment of him. And I, I think Sanu is fine as a, as a second wide receiver in this offense. I think he does his job to a competent, if not more than competent level, but I just don't think he's really this great number two wide receiver that other people talk about him like oh he's one of the better number two wide receivers in the league I, I don't really agree with that because I think what happens with Sanu is he'll have a good game from time to time when he gets the right matchup and he has one of those quote-unquote what is for him a big game quote-unquote a big game where he goes you know he gets like seven or eight catches for like 80 yards and a touchdown but those games are pretty few and far between and they most often come against you know a Jeremy Lane a Demarius Randall or a Robert Nelson 
Um, and then like for the other 65 to 70% of the season, you know, he's putting up a three catch 30, 30 yard sort of stat line. Um, and that's like, you know, when you actually go and look at his numbers, his game logs and whatnot, you'll actually find that that that's not me pulling those numbers out of my butt. That is literally what he has done for about 65% of his games in a Falcons uniform. Um, and again, that's not trying to bash him. Um, I just don't think, you know, I, I think what Sanu brings to the table is that he can be that quote unquote high level number two wide receiver for about four or five games a year, which is fine. Like that's what you want. And then the rest of the season, he's basically no different than your average number three wide receiver that most teams will have on their roster. Um, and like, you know, I don't think you need him to be more than that because I think as a function of this offense, like that's all you kind of need him to be. And the issue, like in 2016, that's all he was. But it wasn't a problem because you had a, th- a third, fourth, and fifth wide receiver in Gabriel Hardy and Robinson, in whatever order you want to put those guys in, that more than made up for the fact that to, for two-thirds of, the, of 2016, Mohamed Sanu was putting up a three-catch, 30-yard stat line every week. Um and that's one of the issues that you did not have in 2017. You know, you, you saw a massive drop from Gabriel. Hardy's numbers were about the same, but then you remove Aldrick Robinson from the equation and neither Andre Roberts or Marvin Hall or Nick Williams sort of filled that those shoes. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, talking about Hardy, I think like, you know, you look at Hardy, you look at Jones, you look at Sanu, basically their, their production from 2016 to 2017 didn't really change. The argument I would I would say for that is because I think for the most part Hardy's role didn't really change in the offense because I think Hardy's role in the offense is basically to be marginalized by Muhammad Sanu. And again, this is not me taking shots at Sanu. It's just talking about sort of like the role that Sanu plays in this offense is basically the same role that you would draw up for what Justin Hardy should play. You know, Justin Hardy is ideally a slot receiver. That's what Sanu's role is. Um, and, and like Muhammad Sanu, Hardy's at his best running those option routes out of the slot. Um, I personally think Hardy is a more polished and more developed route runner than Sanu is. Um, but I also think, you know, when you make him into an outside receiver, it sort of marginalizes his talent there um, because he's dealing with bigger, faster cornerbacks where he can't run by those guys and he has to be, you know, a Marvin Harrison level route runner in order to sort of win against those guys, um, which he's not. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, I don't think Sanu is that guy either that is going to beat out most outside corners cleanly. Uh, but again, I don't think the Falcons really ask Sanu to be that guy. And I think that's, that's sort of the difference between those two guys. Sanu is basically not asked to be that guy. And Hardy's basically because he's been marginalized in the offense is kind of forced to be that guy and, and, and certainly doesn't live up to that. So, you know, Sanu spends about 68% of his reps this past season in the slot. That's up from 60 last year. Hardy spent about 38% of his reps in the slot. That's up from like 28% last year. Um, I don't expect, you know, Hardy to turn into some elite Julian Edelman or Randall Cobb or whoever you want to throw into that conversation as an elite slot receiver. But I I think I would make a a strong argument that if you put him in the slot next year, you played him in a comparable amount of reps that Taylor Gabriel got this year with the majority of those reps being in the slot, I think you would probably see Justin Hardy's production at least double from where it was this past season. 
Um, and I, I think for my stance with Mohamed Sanu basically being this $32 million receiver, he should be able to hold his own on the outside and, and be, you know, able to function if he only sees maybe 30 to 40% of his reps in the slot moving forward. Um, and I think that's a change that the Falcons are potentially going to have to make this upcoming season. Otherwise, you're going to once again see a wide receiver group that underachieves because I don't expect Taylor Gabriel to return. I don't see him coming back as a free agent. I don't think the issue is with Taylor Gabriel again. I think the issue is how he was used. He basically ran four routes or, or plays this year, screens, jet sweep, deep post, and drag routes. And basically on all the deep posts, Matt Ryan missed them. <laughs> on every single one of them and for the most part he was ignored when he would run those shallow drag routes underneath um and it was one of those things that taylor gabriel said to me myself on twitter when i talked about sort of the potential for him to regress and why he was so successful under kyle shanahan um versus under other offensive coordinators like john d filippo and now sark and Gabriel responded basically saying, like, the, the, it isn't because Kyle Shanahan is some genius that is some masterwork at drawing up route plays. It's just like he puts him in a position, you know, he, he gives him the opportunity to be successful. And I think that's going back to those basically only four plays that Taylor Gabriel's asked to run. He, that's not really putting him in an opportunity to be successful. He's more than capable of, of being basically this gimmick player that he was essentially used as not only in Cleveland in, in 2015, but also now here in Atlanta in 2017. Um, and I, you know, I wish Taylor Gabriel the best wherever he ends up in 2018. I do not expect that to be the, with the Falcons. Um, I, I think it's sort of a foregone conclusion at this point in my eyes. I, you know, I've, I've thought that way for a number of weeks. Um, I'd love to see him come back because I, I, I do think he's a good player and I do think he'll be a tough player that's going to be difficult for the Falcons to replace, but uh, I don't think it's in his best interest to remain here if this is all that, you know, Sark is going to u- utilize him as. So I think one of the things that the Falcons will have to be trying to do this offseason is to adequately replace him. Hardy is not going to be the replacement for what Taylor Gabriel brings to the table because they're two different receivers. Marvin Hall possibly could, and because they have uh, very similar skill sets, um, but we'll, we'll see whether or not the team is willing to sort of go uh, into the, put all their eggs in the Marvin Hall basket. So before we move on and talk a little bit more about the back end of this wide receiver depth, I do want to remind the guys that uh, I will probably be listening to four or five podcasts a day to try to get updates on this senior bowl and what's it all going down in Mobile, Alabama this week during the practices. Uh, but you guys can do that by checking out the Lockdown Podcast Network, where hosts of Lockdown Patriots, Lockdown Bears, Lockdown NFL Draft, and Lockdown Eagles will all be down in Mobile this week, giving you their assessments on what's going down at the Senior Bowl. So definitely subscribe to those podcasts, get those daily updates uh, on the Lockdown Podcast Network, wherever podcasts can be found. Okay, let's let's talk about Marvin Hall. And Marvin Hall is one of those reasons, one of the examples that I would use for why I think drops tend to be overrated by people. I think people looked at that drop that Marvin Hall on that wide open touchdown in the preseason and said, oh, Marvin Hall dropped a touchdown. He's he's not going to make the team. And it's like, no, if you actually evaluate Marvin Hall's skill set, particularly in comparison to a player like Reggie Davis, who many people thought he was directly competing with, Hall has better ball skills. He has cleaner, quicker route runner. He's better at coming out of getting – 
he's, he has better bursts coming out of his breaks uh, because of that, and he's better at beating press coverage. And all of that's part of the equation of being an NFL receiver, and arguably the biggest part of the equation of being an NFL receiver. But the you know the problem is that people tend to focus only on whether or not you catch the ball at the end of the play, and obviously, you know, catching the football is important. Um, but, you know, you'll never get that opportunity to catch the ball if you don't get open. Getting open is the most important aspect of being an NFL wide receiver. And so you have to pay attention to basically steps one through three or whatever you want to call it. Uh, like I just cited, that's going to get the ball thrown to you. You know, catching a football isn't a particularly skill, great skill. Most of the people listening to, listening to me talk right now can catch a football. Um, but, you know, being able to cover X amount of yards and X amount of steps that takes a relatively unique skill set and being able to do that while being covered by another sort of 99th percentile athlete takes a, a, a particular type of a human being to be able to do that. So when I say drops are overrated, it's not to say that drops don't matter or drops don't have a negative impact on things, but I do think people have a tendency to get hyper-focused on catching the football. And while this is an overly simplistic viewpoint you know, if you take a guy that can get open five times a game but drops one of them, he's still going to be much more productive and much more valuable than someone that only gets open two or three times a game but never drops any of those passes. You, you understand what I'm saying? So, like, when I say drops are overrated, it was more sort of a reaction to, at the time, what I thought was sort of a leading and, and sort of false narrative that people were acting like, oh, the biggest reason for why the Falcons offense has dropped off from 2016 to 2017 is because they dropped passes and they're not, you know, executing. And it's like, you know, 20, you know, the difference from 2016 to 2017 was like 20 drops or something like that. Like, that's not what caused the offense to not score hundred almost 190 points this past year. Um, but it's not to say that that is, you know, it's certainly fair to say that, you know, drops were a significant factor. And you can certainly argue that, you know, if 20 of those, you know, out of those 20 drops, how many of them were explosive plays would be a, a very significant factor. You know, if it was 20, you know, basically I would argue that the difference between the 2016 and 2017 offenses were the fact that the 2017 team had like 20 less explosive plays. Um, so, you know, 20 plays could mean the difference, but certainly not all of those plays were drops. And I haven't finished charting the season, but, uh, you know, if that number winds up becoming eight to 10 of those drops could have been those big explosive plays waiting to happen. I could come back and sort of retract my whole drops are overrated nonsense that I've been spouting on this podcast for the last several months. Um, but if that number is maybe like four or five, then I'm going to be like, yeah, it's a significant factor, but it's not sort of this massive issue that, um, you know, doomed the Falcon season from the start. So, you know, going back to Marvin Hall, you know, the, what's going to be interesting about Marvin Hall is he did drop that pass against the Saints and that, you know, whether it's a coincidence or not, was basically after that point, you know, that butt interception by Marshawn Lattimore, that was after the point, after that point, the Falcons basically kept him inactive. And so maybe that's because the coaching staff was unhappy with him. Maybe he was in the doghouse. Maybe it was something something else injury related. You know, we just found out the other day, Justin Hardy apparently had shoulder surgery. No one knew about that. Maybe that explains why, why Nick Williams got so many reps in the postseason and why the, the Falcons didn't put Hardy back on, on special teams 
when, you know, they were sort of throwing anything at the wall at the end of the season to have any competent gunners on punt coverage and, and Hardy wasn't there. Um, who knows? Um, but like, you know, I think as far as Hall, you know, I think Hall can be that sort of seam stretcher that you're looking for in a Taylor Gabriel type of player. Like, again, if all you're going to do is run four plays to whoever's going to replace Taylor Gabriel, then you don't necessarily need, you know, this world-class talent to do that. If You know, to run those deep posts, Hall can do that. He has the speed to be that seam stretcher, to be that guy that can help take the top off of the defense in a sort of run-first play-action-based offense that the Falcons seem very, very likely to run. Sanu's not going to be that guy. Hardy's not going to be that guy. And we know from past experience that you need somebody other than Julio Jones that can be that guy. Um, I think Hall can be that guy. I think Reggie Davis has a chance to be that guy, even though I do think Reggie Davis is a little bit, at least last year was a little bit raw than we would want him to be. But, you know, who knows what what he does this upcoming season. I'm looking forward to see what growth he shows. Um, but and I certainly think the Falcons could and should be in a market for one of those players. But I don't quite agree with folks that think that requires a significant investment, either in free agency or in the draft. You know, we were able to find Taylor Gabriel, Marvin Hall, and Alger Robinson basically on the streets, or you can use undrafted free agency, which two of those guys were, or, or late round picks. I mean, you could basically, if you just need a, a fast guy that can stretch the field, you can go up and, and, and sign Philly Brown tomorrow off the street, and you can bring him into camp and see him push Hall or, and compete for that spot. You can go out there and sign some mid tier free agents like a Bryce Butler or Brandon Coleman that aren't going to cost you a huge amount of dollars to be that guy. You know, you can draft those guys almost every single year. Those guys are going to be available on day three, round four or later, as Jamison Crowder, Stephon Diggs, J.J. Nelson, Malcolm Mitchell, Tyreek Hill, Martavis Bryant, Kenny Stills can attest. You can even find those guys in undrafted free agency. Again, Gabriel's a good example of that. Robbie Anderson, Alan Hearns, Tyrell Williams, etc., are, are several examples of recent guys that have come in the league and sort of can be developed and, and fulfill that role. So I don't quite get why you would necessarily want to invest a higher pick than that in, in basically a guy that's essentially going to be the fourth wide receiver. You know, I can sit here and promise you guys. I know a lot of people won't agree with me and won't believe me when I say this, but I can sit here and promise you that whoever, even if you use a second or third round pick on that, on a wide receiver, short of you finding uh, uh, the next Michael Thomas, which you're probably not going to find, or the next Sterling Shepard, which, are, again, you're probably not going to find, you're not going to find a guy that's going to leapfrog Hardy uh, as the, and become the number three wide receiver in this offense. Um, you know, I've done some research over the last couple of years and looked at some of the day two guys, day two wide receivers in their rookie years over the last three years that have played 540 or more snaps as rookies, because 540 is the, the number of snaps that Taylor Gabriel had this year. Um, and, you know, over the last three drafts, there's been 23 wide receivers taken on day two of the draft, and only eight of them as rookies played at least 540 snaps. And the majority of those guys, that of those eight, you know, that's only 35% of those guys, and the, the majority of those guys went to teams that either had a number of injuries that forced those rookies to have to play a bigger role than they were initially expected because a lot of them went into the season as the fourth wide receiver and then got sort of pushed up to number two or number three wide receiver due to injuries or, or, or whatnot. Or they were drafted by teams that already didn't really have quality wide receivers. 
particularly in the starting role. And so therefore the fact that the rookie was green wasn't necessarily a, a negative because they just basically needed any sort of infusion of talent. Obviously the Falcons don't really have that situation because they have, you know, Julio Jones and of course the great Muhammad Sanu, uh, everybody's favorite number two wide receiver. Um, and so like the chances of you finding that guy is, is a lot lower um, than the, you know, in the Falcons case, and not to mention the fact that the, there's really no justification for the Falcons to use that high pick on a wide, on a third wide receiver. Even if you were utterly convinced that player is going to be better than Justin Hardy right from day one and, and be a number three receiver, you know, when you're drafting day two picks, you're drafting starters. And the truth of the matter is, the way that the Falcons' offense operates, the, the number three wide receiver isn't really a starter. Like um, the Falcons used. You know, again, I haven't finished charting the season, but the Falcons used three wide receiver sets last year. Most weeks, about 50 to 60 percent of the time, 50, 55 percent um, on average. And, and you know, I don't know exactly where that ranks league wide, but I'm pretty confident. I'm like highly confident that that's probably in the bottom five or six teams um, because the league average in that regard is about like 60, 65 percent. In terms of the usage of uh, three wide receiver sets, that eleven personnel that we're talking about uh, last year, and uh, you know, I, I can't imagine it went down. Um, and so, like, unlike the, you know, like you can, you know, you do the flip side and you say, oh, well, our nickel cornerback is basically a starter because our nickel cornerback is going to play between sixty-five and seventy-five percent of the snaps, which was the case for a guy like Brian Bull this year. Um, that's not going to be the case for at least with the Falcons at their number three receiver because Taylor Gabriel only wound up playing fifty three percent of the snaps, and so unless you're going to nest, unless you're going to basically say like, oh no, we're going to be this high flying spread them out sort of team, and we're going to fully invest in this three wide receiver set, which I highly doubt is going to be the case. It doesn't make any sense to basically invest a starting caliber draft pick in a guy that even in the very, very, very best case of scenarios, is only going to play about half the snaps, you know, at least in the immediate future. Now, you could justify that move a little bit more, right? You could justify that move a little bit more if you're basically saying, oh, we're going to use a day two pick, a second or third round pick on a wide receiver, and we're, because we're going to cut Mohamed Sanu next year. Now, if you've already made that decision, now, I don't think, you know, this is coming from me, guys. I don't really see the reason why the Falcons would have already made that decision at this point in time. But like, if that's basically what you're basically planning to do, and you're like, well, we'll just use 2018 to sort of work out the kinks with that rookie receiver, and then we're going to cut Muhammad Sanu because Justin Hardy's a free agent after 2018. And we know even if he doesn't necessarily have a monster year in 2018, we know we can sort of re-sign him as a number three wide receiver next year for a lot cheaper than, you know, say $32 million. And then that, you know, whoever we draft in the round two or round three this year will be in the driver's seat to sort of slide into that number two spot for Mohamed Sanu. And then that guy is going to be the starter. Now, if that's what you're planning on doing, then okay, I can see, I can understand maybe the desire to, to draft that, that wide receiver on day two uh, of this year's draft. 
But like outside of that, if you're just basically looking for a you know a third or fourth receiver, a guy that can sort of bolster the depth, you don't need to use a, a starting caliber player to get that type of player. You can wait until day three of the draft where you can find many of the sort of quality talent that can sort of play you know basically what Hardy did this past year, which is maybe a third of the snaps uh, this upcoming season. You basically just need an Aldrick Robinson type of player. Um, and that's not necessarily hard to do, is, is sort of my larger point. Um, wrapping up the wide receiver conversation, I think Andre Roberts is, of course, probably going to be a goner in free agency. I do think Marvin Hall and, and Reggie Davis give you some solid in-house candidates. I think, you know, you know whether Justin Hardy or, or Tevin Coleman or, or other guys are also in the mix that currently on the roster. Devin Fuller is going to be back next year. I don't have a whole lot of uh, optimism for, for Devin Fuller. I don't think the Falcons need to go out and get a wide receiver specifically to return kicks. Cause again, I, I, I am relatively confident that between Marvin Hall and Reggie Davis, one of those two guys will emerge at least to be as competent a return specialist as Andre Roberts. I mean, you can even throw Nick Williams in the conversation there as well. I don't have as negative opinion of Andre Roberts as a returner. We'll get more into this when we talk special teams later this week. But, um, you know, I think he was okay. He was league average as, as far as the returners go. Um, but, you know, when you're not going to use him as your fifth wide receiver, which the Falcons didn't do, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to bring him back because he's not necessarily bringing a ton of value um, in the return game. So I don't, you know, I think you can bring in a guy that has return skills, a wide receiver that has return skills. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think you necessarily bring in a guy only to return kicks. I think the Falcons should have learned their lessons the last two off seasons with the additions of Devin Fuller and with the additions of Andre Roberts that signing a guy just to return kicks is not necessarily going to reap the return on your investment that you think it is. And so hopefully the Falcons don't get a third strike in that regard. Uh, you already have Hall. You already have Davis. You can bring in another guy that has offensive upside and in addition to return skills, but don't bring in a guy just to basically return kicks. Okay, uh, we're talking a lot of football in today's episode. Uh, we're going to move on to the tight end position, but I do want to remind you guys that the Atlanta Hawks have won four out of their last six games. And I want to give a shout-out to my good buddy Brad Rowland, the host of Locked on Hawks, uh, on the NBA side of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, let's talk tight ends. Um, you know, I, I've been very vocal over the last several weeks, several months with my support for Austin Hooper. I, I, I think sort of the backlash against Hooper is is downright ridiculous, I think. And it will, I'll get into some of the reasons why I think that has sort of emerged this year. This whole notion that Hooper is a disappointment uh, is is one of the craziest things I've heard. I understand, you know, like, I, it's not crazy in the sense of I can't fathom why people are saying it. I, I understand perfect, understand exactly why people say it. But I do think this is a, a great example of why and how expectations can completely butcher your perspective. Um, and, like, because I've legitimately had Falcon fans on Twitter tell me that the reason why they view Austin Hooper as a disappointment is because he did not live up to what Tony Gonzalez was supposed to be. And they say that, you know, it's hard to glean people's tone on Twitter, but they seemingly say that with a straight face, like, oh, the Falcons expected 
Austin Hooper to be this Tony Gonzalez player. And it's like, no, they didn't. No, that's ridiculous. No one thought they would get another Tony Gonzalez. Like Any human being that thinks they were going to get another Tony Gonzalez from Austin Hooper, let alone any tight end, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And certainly the Falcons coaching staff in their front office did not draft Austin Hooper and be like, oh, he's going to be our Tony Gonzalez. If you heard any conversations that linked Austin Hooper to Tony Gonzalez, what you need to do is find that person and punch them in the face because they have no clue what they're talking about with football. Any comparisons that a human being would make, now I say that and someone's going to drum up a clip of me like offhand mentioning to Austin Hooper and Tony Gonzalez in the same sentence, so you know, meet me in Temecula. But like, if you made any comparisons between Austin Hooper and Tony Gonzalez in any regard, there's no reason to ever compare those guys in any case other than they both play tight end and they both play for the Atlanta Falcons. That's it. But they have as much in common as players as, you know, Julio Jones and Marvin Hall do. Like, that's about it, you know? And, like, that's not even meant to bash them. It's just, like, there's no reality where you should have thought a second-year player like Austin Hooper was going to be on par with the the greatest tight end of of all time. Arguably, you know, some people think Gronk is. But uh, I'm going to go with Tony G. Um you know, because you heard a lot of complaints about, oh, well, you know, we we thought we were going to get Tony Gonzalez, but that wasn't realistic. But we did think we were going to get Jacob Tammy. We didn't get him. Like, we did get Jacob Tammy. We actually got better than Jacob Tammy. You go back to last year, seven full games that Tammy had as a starter. He had 20 catches for 191 yards and three touchdowns. You extrapolate that to a full 16-game slate. Tammy finishes the season with 46 catches, 437 yards, and seven touchdowns. You look at Austin Hooper's numbers this year. In a full 16-game slate as a start, he had 49 catches for 526 yards and three touchdowns. Yeah, the touchdowns are down, but you know, pretty much outside of Hooper, I mean, outside of Hardy and, and Sanu, and certainly in regards to the entire Falcons offense, everybody's touchdowns are down. But for some reason, people want to hold that personally against you know Austin Hooper. Like, oh, well, that just shows that he was a disappointment. Um, you know, you got to also remember that Hooper, after Tammy got hurt, Hooper basically started those last 10 games, including the playoffs at the tight end position in those 10 games, he caught 19 passes for 182 yards and three touchdowns. You extrapolate that again over an entire season, Hooper ends up with 30 catches for 291 yards and five touchdowns. Again, compare that to what he put up this year. You know, this year there was a 60% increase in his catches, an 80% increase in his yards, a 10% increase in his yards per reception. You know, again, the touchdowns are down, but that's not necessarily his fault. Sark. Sorry, I need a drink of water. Um, So, like, this idea that Hooper, you know, you know, Hooper showed tremendous growth this year. And so, you know, he's a second-year tight end. He's certainly not um, fully developed. But, like, this whole negative perception of Austin Hooper is really skewed by a handful of plays. It's it's a couple of bad drops, you know. He had a couple of drops that turned into interceptions. No more, by the way, than Muhammad Sanu, but no one talks about Muhammad Sanu that way. Again, and I'm not trying to, again, I'm not trying to sit here and throw Muhammad Sanu under the bus. It's just baffling to me that you look at the same number of drop passes or deflections that led to interceptions with Muhammad Sanu as Austin Hooper, but no one's out here saying, man, Muhammad Sanu was a real disappointment this year. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me why one guy is being 
thrown under the bus and the other guy isn't. I don't think either one of them should be thrown under the bus. In both cases, they're fluky plays, you know? Hooper ran a bad route against, you know, Carolina or whoever it was. He had a bad drop, you know, I think it was against Minnesota or something like that. You know, he had a couple of bad plays. There's no denying that he had a couple of bad plays, and, and particularly a, a couple of them resulted in turnovers. But again, those were sort of fluky plays. But I don't think those, you know, hand, literal handful of plays should overshadow the other things that Hooper was able to contribute this year. And this is, you know, I'm not going to, I promise I'm not going to go on too much of a rant here, but this is part of my problem with the quote unquote analysis that you guys, you guys, and I'm referring to you listeners that you get from other people. And I'm not trying to be antagonistic towards you, the listeners. I'm just warning you of the, the quote unquote bad analysis that is out there. And it's basically that analysis stems from people trying, and this was, goes back to what I was trying to rant about and maybe wasn't clear about when I was, when on my Austin Hooper rant several weeks ago, several months ago, or whenever it was, um, people basically justify their quote unquote analysis it's a justification of the anger and frustration or in some cases the joy and elation that they feel at 5.30 on a Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. And so they're basically trying to justify their emotions. And oftentimes those emotions are built up off their anger or their joy over one play, right? And in the case of Austin Hooper, it's like three of those plays and they're completely blown out of context. You look at his efficiency in the red zone. You look at his efficiency on third downs. You look at his improved blocking over the course of the year. You look at his statistical improvements from 2016 to 2017 that I just cited. And then on top of that, you factor in the sort of fluky bad plays. And all of it, when you take a step back and look at the big picture in context, you're like, oh, well, Austin Hooper had a pretty good year. It wasn't perfect by any means, but there are, and there are areas he needs to improve upon. But in the context of a second-year starter that's still early in his development, you know, and also when you factor in that had he stayed in school, you know, he, 2017 would have been his senior year at Stanford. You know, it, it all comes back, and you take a step back, it all comes back and be like, yeah, there's a lot, you know, there's more that he could do, but there's still plenty of room for growth, and there's no reason that we shouldn't be very patient to see what he can do. The other thing that I think about Hooper is I think – Part of the issue, again, this goes back to the expectations. I think a lot of people expected him to be this high-level sort of tight end because they, you know, for from various quote-unquote analysts, <laughs> you know, they got some bad they got some bad takes. Um, and but this was one of those things that I said in my scouting report. This is one of the things that last summer, when everybody was, you know, when I was trying to derail the Hooper hype train, like Austin Hooper is not going to be that type of tight end. Um, like in the same vein as a Gronk or or Jordan Reed or Travis Kelsey, because <clears throat> he's not going to be a, a guy that's going to separate against quality competition. He's going to be a guy that's going to depend heavily on the trust and rapport that he has with his quarterback. Because a lot of times he's not going to get quote unquote open, and it's going to be he's going to have to make a lot of catches in traffic. Um, and you know he's not a he's not a premier athlete like some of those other guys I just mentioned. Um, he's a good athlete, but not necessarily a premier athlete. We saw that throughout the season. You know, when the Falcons drew up plays that were sort of reliant on his ability to, you know, beat man coverage, as we talked about, he was a lot less effective making those plays as opposed to when he was attacking zones and whatnot. And sort of, you know, this goes back to the sort of the route combinations. But I think he can get better there. 
Um, he's still young. He's still developing. His route running still needs time to develop and become more refined. You're not you're not necessarily inheriting this refined, polished route runner. It's very rare that you're going to see a guy sort of be this refined, polished route runner in his second year in the NFL. Julio Jones wasn't really this refined, polished route runner in his second year in the NFL, and he's Julio freaking Jones. But, like, yeah, you know, Hooper's going to rely a lot on, on Matt Ryan and the trust he has with him and the trust that Matt Ryan's going to basically be willing to throw the football in the traffic. Certainly there were times this year where Matt Ryan made those throws and it certainly didn't go in his regard. But that's something that is going to take time and and be developed over the next couple of years. And I, I don't think people should be holding it against Austin Hooper that there's going to be some growing pains. There's going to be a, a few ups and downs. But I do think... Again, when you when you don't become hyper focused on the the couple of downs, there are a lot of instances where there are a lot of ups. If you go back and and you watch all of his targets and all of his catches, you're going to see more good than bad. Um, you know, I I do think there is room to upgrade the tight end position, but I, there is a little bit of confusion when I see other people say that. Um. And I always have to say, like, wait, are you saying we need to upgrade the tight end position because you think Austin Hooper should be replaced as the starting tight end? Or do you think the tight end position needs to be upgraded because we need to replace Tololo as the backup tight end? And, you know, for my money, I think the latter is true. I think you can you can make a very, very compelling case that the Falcons need to upgrade their backup tight end position. Tololo, he was another guy that saw a decline in production in 2017. But I think everybody sort of saw that coming. You know, he averaged, what, 20 yards per reception in 2016. And, you know, the three previous years, what his average per catch was like seven yards or something like that. Now, he saw basically the same amount of catches this year, but it resulted in about half the yards. And you didn't see as many sort of those throwbacks that were sort of the classic Toilolo play back in 2016 under Shanahan. And basically the way that he was used this past season was mainly as an outlet receiver on those rollouts where Matt Ryan, either pressure, an unblocked pressure guy, came off the the backside and forced Matt Ryan to get rid of the ball a little bit too early, or in those rare instances where the, the downfield receiver didn't get open and Matt Ryan, you know, sort of went underneath to Toy Lolo. Of course, there was one notable instance in, in the Eagles game where that was not the case. But uh, we all know about that. So, you know, in regards to Tolo's role in the offense, nothing wrong with it. It's fine. It's perfectly fine. But, um, you know, in this real, if he's if that's all he's going to be in this offense, you're not going to get as frequent use of the throwbacks. We only really saw it one time against Seattle this year. Um, then you, you want to, ideally, you want a guy that can be a little bit more effective after the catch. By the way, as an aside, that's sort of an uh, underrated aspect of Austin Hooper's game, um, which is he was pretty good after the catch this year. He was top 10 in yards after the catch among the tight end position. Uh, and I think his average yards after the catch per reception, I think, was top five. I haven't looked at necessarily everybody. But, you know, his average per catch yak was, like, slightly behind Kelsey and, and Gronk's. And so, you know, this goes back to sort of like why is the drop pass that turned into an interception against the Saints the play that defines the season and not that vicious stiff arm he threw against the Bears in week one, at, you know, after the catch. But I digress. Um, 
I was certainly midway through the season. I was certainly more down on Toy Lolo, um, particularly with his blocking, because I, I thought it took a big step backwards from where it was last season. I think his blocking improved over the second half of the season, so I have a lot less issue with Toy Lolo coming back as a second tight end this year um, now than I did, you know, probably three months ago. Um, but you know, for my money, I think you know if you're not going to be a factor in the passing game. The, then you have to, and we know Toilo is not going to be that guy, but you have to bring it a lot more consistently as a blocker. And Toilo didn't really do that for the first, you know, six to eight games. Now, Hooper also sort of got off to a rocky start as a blocker as well, but I certainly think he turned things around as the season wore on as well. Now, looking again, haven't finished charting the last three games um, in, in terms of the passing game, but uh, basically most games, the Falcons use 12 personnel between 15 and 25%. It probably averages out to be about 20% for the the season. Uh, that 12 personnel is, of course, the sort of classic two tight end set. Um, and so I, I think you can sort of tie this tight end two position a little bit to the fullback position. I think if you can upgrade that fullback spot, then I think you can certainly live with Tully Little as the number two tight end in, in 2018. But I think if the Falcons aren't confident that they're going to upgrade that fullback spot, whether that's in March or April, then I think you kind of have to go all in on upgrading this tight end, backup tight end position, because I, I just don't think you can live in a world where Derek Coleman and T- T- Levine Toilolo are your, are going to wind up playing 40% of the snaps next year like they did this past year. Um, you know, I think, th- you know, there's a, there's a reality where Coleman improves in 2018, but given that he has not been a very effective fullback for the last three years that he's been a fullback in this league, I don't really think that's a very realistic expectation. You know, Toilo is now in his sixth year. We know what he is at this point in time. He's okay. He's competent blocker, occasional, you know, 10 catch receiver. That's you're like, okay, yeah, he'll, he'll get a couple out with throws, but that's all he is. Um, you know, and like, even if the plan is just basically like the Falcons decide, you know what, we're just going to go all out and get the best blocking tight end that we can possibly get. And that guy doesn't bring anything more to the table. In fact, may even bring less to the table as a receiver than Toy Lolo does. Like, that's fine with me. Like, I just don't think you can necessarily, like, you, one of those two spots, whether it's the fullback or the tight end, has to be a reliable blocker. And and based off of the first half of the season, I don't fully trust Toy Lolo to the same level that I probably would have this time last year to be that guy. Now, um, there's also the possibility that you go with a guy that's a little less reliable as a blocker, but brings a lot more in the passing game. Now, probably I would be more inclined to that second option than than the first, going more with the the better receiver that can get by as a blocker. Um, but I also think those guys typically tend to be a little bit harder to find, particularly given that how much the Falcons use their second tight end as an inline blocker. And the the reality of college football and whatnot is that a lot of teams don't really <laughs> have guys in line, so you kind of have to rely more heavily on free agency to get those guys that are a little bit more developed there. There's also reality where the Falcons go out there and get more of a, a sort of H-back flex guy. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily the way you want to go. And, and, you know, in that situation, you would make Hooper more of the inline guy, but I think Hooper is not necessarily ideal for that role. But you can certainly, there's there's a couple of guys that potentially you can make a, a strong argument could be that guy that certainly bring a lot more upside 
um, in the receiving game, Jalen Samuels. <clears throat> Sorry, my my throat's dry. Um, that you know could could certainly benefit you there in that regard. Um, you know, and I think part of my issue is when it gets to Eric Saubert, um, I sort of more see him being more that H back type of player than than bringing in someone new because I don't necessarily know if Saubert's ever going to be that in line guy that you're looking for in the sort of the Torlola role uh, of the offense. It'll be interesting, you know, in regards to Saubert, it'll be interesting to see how much growth he shows this upcoming summer. Um, you know, I, I tend, I think you really have to give rookies, uh, particularly those that you draft, because that you have a much more vested interest in their development, you have to really give them a shot at a second summer at the very least to see how much growth they show from year one to year two. <clears throat> Brian Hill. But, um, you know, you, you really do have to wait on, on those guys because I, I think there's a lot of cases in, you know, what makes and breaks you in this league is how much growth you show from year one to year two. And that, and that may be just based all purely off of what you do in the preseason. Um, there's been so many guys that have, you know, the difference is um, that growth that you show from, your first training camp to your second training camp as a player, oftentimes that winds up being the difference between the guy that sticks in the league for the next six years versus the guy that washes out of the league in the next six months. And I think part of the problem is too many people sort of in their analysis uh, base way too much of their opinions about players based entirely off of how well they do in their first year in the NFL. And, and, you know, the, the, it's so rare to see how many guys that come in right away and, and play at a high level or even flash, you know, their first years in the NFL. They're just kind of like it's the, their head is swimming and that jump from college to the pros is, is so significant that you kind of need a redshirt year. Now, you know, to wrap up the tight end position, we'll see what Alex Gray does. I'm not going to hold my breath, but we'll see. But he'll be another guy that's in the, in the conversation for what growth he shows this upcoming summer. You know, basically, if he plays 12 snaps this upcoming training camp, that will be a huge improvement because I think he only played like three snaps <laughs> last preseason. Um, but we'll, we'll we'll see how it goes. Josh Perkins is not coming back. He signed a futures contract with the Eagles. Um, you know, I don't think tight end is necessarily a need, uh, but I certainly think you could definitely use another body. Um, I think it's more about finding the right guy than necessarily just like, oh, we'll just, we, d- we desperately need a tight end. You, you need to go out and find the right guy. And whether that's an inline guy, whether that's an H-back, whatever the case may be, you, you need to figure out how you're going to use those guys. I, I do think the inline guy makes a lot more sense given the current needs and the current issues with Tony Lowe. Um And so I, I, I do think there's some potential free agents that could sort of fit the bill in that regard. Uh, we'll certainly talk about some of those guys as we get closer to March as I continue to do my film study of the upcoming free agents. But one guy, potentially, one name that I'll certainly throw out there right now, potentially that sort of fits that bill as an inline guy, potentially is is a guy like Denver Broncos tight end Virgil Green. So, yeah, that's it, guys. I know another long, extremely long, hour-long uh, positional review. Apparently I have a lot more to say about all these positions. I know in my head when I decided to do this, oh, this will, I'll bang these out in like 30, 30 minutes or whatever, but two back-to-back and certainly tomorrow with the offensive line, defensive line probably will be longer. So we'll, we'll decide depending on how long that one goes if I separate that into two separate episodes. 
in the meantime, guys, by all means, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Falcfans. If it's podcast related, just let me know in that tweet. Otherwise, just go ahead and send it. If it's podcast related, send it over to Locked On Falcons. That's my show. That's the show's Twitter handle. If you don't like uh, Twitter character limits, you can hit me up on Facebook. Locked On Falcons is the Facebook page. Um, Locked On Falcons at mail.com is the email address. Of course, you can find out and, and you can leave comments on lockedonfalcons.com and falcfans.com uh, where the show is hosted and posted daily. And uh, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm done talking. My mouth is, is very dry. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back tomorrow to certainly talk about offensive line, possibly defensive line, and uh, we'll, we'll keep these positional reviews going. But, uh, you know, look, I, I, I will never apologize for good content. I, I hope you guys think this is good content. So um, if, it, if it happens to be a little bit longer, you know, yeah, enjoy your morning commutes, I guess. You are locked on Falcons. Your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.